It's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. Well, hello. I'm back. I'm back from Vegas, actually. Uh, it was pretty gnarly. Las Vegas is an amazing place. Special thanks to Project for bringing us out there. Always super glad to continue our partnership with them. And uh, it was it was a gnarly time. I'll go ahead and explain this story because people keep DMing me and being like, oh, I kind of like it when you do more of an intro and say what's going on. All right, well, here's here's what's going on. Uh, I'm pretty much a goofball and I am not a gambling guy, but I'm in Vegas and you know, the context first off, let me just explain in August of 2021, I'm out there with John Moy and Gian and Moy and I are at uh, the casino and we're just kind of roaming around and there's really like Vegas is great because there's everything to do, but at the same time, there's kind of nothing to do. So, you know, it's late at night. All you can do is basically drink or gamble, which I don't really do in any of those. So uh, I'm like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to I'm going to get a little cash. We'll have some fun. I'm going to go to this slot machine. And because I love Gene Wilder, there is this goofy slot machine that's like a Wonka machine, like like Wonka, like Gene Wilder's on the machine. We're, we're talking the real Willy Wonka. None of these other clowns. Right. So I sit down on the machine and. I, I withdrew a hundred bucks, right? Like I was like, this will be my fun money. I'm basically spending this to have fun tonight. I'm, I have no intention of winning. And, and by the way, you can basically only withdraw that much anyway. It's not like you can withdraw a small amount. So I sit down there and, and this is in August and Moy and I are just being goofballs. And I, I sit down and I start gambling and it's a slot machine, right? So you're just pressing the button and it's beautiful because the screen is like 90 inches tall. Like it's, it's, it is not a slot machine like some sort of like cowboy saloon thing that's got like you got to line up the three bars, right? Like it's it's a huge like computer. It's like a video game. So you're, I'm sitting down there and I'm playing the game and I think within it's got to be like a minute or so, I lose everything. Like like basically 80 bucks. I'm down 80% of my of my $100 within 3 minutes and I'm like I'm such an idiot. Like why I you know, and, and real talk, my, my, my grandpa was a bit of a gambling addict. So I was like, you know, I knew this was stupid and you know, Moy's laughing at me and you know, and I was like, you know what, forget it. I'll just, this was dumb. I I learned my lesson. I'm just going to bet it all on this next thing. And I won and I won like a good amount of money. You know, I, I won like, I think like over 300 bucks and I was like, holy cow. And I was up like three, like 60 or something. And I'm like, Moy, let's go. Let's let it ride. And Moy just reaches over and presses the cash out button. And he goes, you're done. And so, <laughs> so I was like, look, yep, I'm done. That was, that was goofy. So fast forward to the other day, I'm in Vegas with James Harvey Kelly, Mordecai Rubenstein, Josh Peskowitz. And James and I are kind of roaming around. And sure enough, I spot the Wonka machine. Now, let me be clear. I saved all the money that I made in Vegas and was like, this will be my, my, of course, you know, I'm stupid. I'm like, this will be the money that I, that I spend at this time in Vegas. So I got more money to spend. So I'm like, I got like 300 bucks and I sit down and I'm like, dude, by the way, James, I'm a master at this, you know, game. And he's like, oh, okay. And so I sit down and we're both sitting there. And again, within a minute, I've lost like 80, $90. And it's so weird because you you use like pennies that you're, you know, it's like a penny slot, but each thing is like 250 creds, credits or 350 credits or whatever. So you're really like playing like $3.50 or $4.50 every time you're playing, right? Like 
Like, I know many of you tuned in to hear this and you're like, I don't really care to hear about how slot machines work, but I'm telling you how this works because it was just wild. So the next thing you know, I'm down like a hundred bucks and I'm like, you know what? Uh, this was a dumb idea. And I'm like, well, you, look, here's, here's a little bit more. Again, this was the money that I made. I didn't really lose it, blah, 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 whatever dumb thing I'm justifying myself. And I put in some more money and next thing you know, I'm up, I'm up like 160 bucks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I got it. I got it back. I, I got it back. And I'm like, oh, this is how Vegas works. So James is like, dude, cash out. You're done. Like, forget this. Like, you know, because I'm like, well, let's let it ride, you know. And so <laughs> I get up and, you know, we we have our panel. We have dinner. It's amazing. You know, uh, I was so grateful. And that night I'm like, let's go find that effing Wonka machine. Let's go find the Wonka machine. It, it's time. I'm going to go punch Gene Wilder in the face. I got this thing. So I sit down again, and this time I was like, you know, I think it was like our last night. I was like, I'm going to bet it all. And James is laughing, and he's like, dude, I'm so in. It was, it was amazing watching you, and let's sit down and do this together. Uh, I think we lost all of it in about 12 minutes. So, yeah. So the house always wins. There's your, <laughs> there's your, there's your TLDR. Go to Vegas, lose all your money. Hey, it was stupid. Um, I love doing it. I had a good time. Anyway. My guest this week is Sarah Murth, co-founder and CEO of Artifox. Welcome to the Desk Flex. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does anyone have a really good desk? Um, if you know, like, give me a minute here. The, the past few years, many of us have been working from home, but on what, right? Like couches, chairs, coffee shops, our laps, weird little pillows, dumb little things that we bought on Instagram that we thought were going to be a good setup, but they weren't. Everyone wants a nice desk a nice space to put their stuff, to work, to collaborate, or if you're like me, waste time. (laughs) Here comes Artifox, an incredibly beautiful and thoughtful design and furniture company that has more or less refined and reinvented the simple desk. And funny enough, I've known Sarah, their founder, since elementary school. (laughs) Artifox is a bit of Dieter Rams, a bit punk rock, but in solid hardwood, right? Like Dieter Dieter Rams is, you know, using it plastic for most of his stuff. I now live for the desk flex. Sarah and I discuss the origins of artifacts, objects of good design, what's on her shelves, and the power of a good uniform. We got two episodes left, everybody. Here we go. So, wow, we're recording this in the middle of a wild snowstorm right now. We are. We're not leaving the house. What's, how, how's, uh, how's the house been? Because I think like, like before we begin, there's definitely to like clear the air. You and I have known each other since second grade. Second grade. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah! Wow. Holy. Yeah, you're right. That is second grade at Jana. That's right. I remember my sister came and helped us build wooden shoes. Wait, why was she teaching us to build wooden shoes? I think she was just a volunteer. Why were we building wooden shoes? I, you know, I have no idea. And as I look back, I wonder if that was the. A good thing to learn or not. <laughs> I wonder if it was, were they like the Japanese shoes? I think they were Danish. They were Danish. Like the clog wooden shoes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we've, know- <laughs> so we've known each other for a very long time. Um, and I, I definitely want to talk a bit about artifacts. I want to talk a bunch about design. But I think to kind of kick things off, you like... You you launched Artifacts around when? Around 2014. 
Okay. And so, mm-hmm. but before that, I mean, you, it, it was you and Dan, your husband, mm-hmm. who's also yes. my friend, um, kind of walk me through some of this stuff. You went to WashU, right? For school? Yeah. So I went to Mizzou and studied interior design and then that quickly evolved into architecture. So I went to WashU for a master's of architecture. And after that, went to work right away in large-scale commercial projects. I actually worked on the largest hospital in North America in Montreal for a long time. Wait, pump the brakes. Talk <laughs> to me about interior design, because I think like that now it feels like it's much more common that people will go to school and study. But at least in when I mean when we were starting to, to go to school, that that seemed like somewhat niche. So where did that come from? Yeah, I think at the time there were starting to be so many shows on TV of like home decorators and flipping houses and things like that. So I think it had a little bit of a bad rap at first because yeah. like if you go to school for interior design, it's very much about laying out floor plans and spaces and larger sort of commercial codes and regulations and things like that. And so I think probably from a parent's perspective or an outside perspective, a lot of people look at it as choosing colors for a space or, you know, just a fabric or something like that, which there's nothing wrong with those things. I mean, that makes a space too. But I I do think going to school for it, you realize how serious a lot of the development of these spaces that we live in is. Where did you start to realize that you were interested in that? I was always interested in art, but then I was a pretty good student. So combining this idea of art and design and creating something with codes and restrictions and reality was really interesting to me. So like merging these two things that's hard and really specific versus wild and out there and figuring out what's the best thing you can make within these parameters. Were there like certain pieces or things like that? Like I think like because for me, I was interested you know, as younger, like I was interested in design, but it was more about kind of loud, obnoxious things like glass brick and neon lights and Looney Tunes and sorts of stuff going over there. But like, I I never sort of knew that was something that could be that could be dived in deeper. Yeah, I would say so my parents took the design of our house really seriously. We never had clutter. We never had stuff anywhere. Our styles, I wouldn't say are the same. They're much more traditional than I am. But Mm -hmm. so I think even just as a kid, I had this upbringing of like, buy something great and make it last and don't just clutter up your life and your environment. And so I was able to take that and go to design school, understand all different genres and really kind of plug into what suited me the best Mm -hmm. um, and what merged those ideas with more of a modern aesthetic. But yeah, I always... I always felt like I was a little bit ahead of my age, I guess, from that perspective, because of my upbringing, that it was always just a little bit more sophisticated or decluttered or really specific instead of, you know, being a kid and wanting cartoon everything or stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I would definitely say even when we were in school, I mean, you had a very minimal um, language, not, not, not verbal, but just like, you know, your color palette, uh, things things seemed like you kind of already knew what you wanted to do way before anyone else did. Yeah, I'd say that was pretty accurate. I was maybe <laughs> a, I was maybe a pretty serious kid <laughs> when everyone else was just goofing around outside. I was like drawing and planning and figuring out what I wanted to do. So you you go to Mizzou and you study interior design. Were there like what was some of the programs of that stuff like? Where you 
is it, I mean, because I think interior design is even obviously like architecture is such a catch-all term into which some almost like clothes and fashion, like people will say they're a designer, but, you know, people will say they're a designer, but it's like, oh, I just like black clothes or I like these silhouettes, but it's such a gargantuan world. Was there a part of interior design that you were kind of gravitating more towards? Yeah, I really liked which I didn't even realize what this was before I started studying it, but kind of the wayfinding or the plugging in of spaces and sort of being able to put yourself in that environment that doesn't exist yet and think through, when I walk through this doorway, what do I see? Is it a large open space? Is it tight and compact? How do I know what the next place is that I'm walking towards? And just this like mapping out of an environment was really exciting to me and taking each space as like little puzzle pieces to see how they all fit together and what your emotional and physical experience would be within each one of those. Whoa, there's kind of some deeper stuff behind there though. <laughs> but like yeah. what, what what were the other things that you were seeing that was, you're like, yeah, that's what I want to be. I would say I got a much bigger exposure to architecture beyond sort of this Midwest existence that I'd grown up in. And so learning architectural history, art history, seeing a lot more of the world, I really resonated a lot more with Scandinavian or Japanese kind of functionality or these more like effortless seeming modern designs where you just had what you needed. Not a bunch of extra stuff, not a bunch of design that was obvious, but more I walk into this space and I feel comfortable, I feel excited, and I'm you know ready for whatever I'm here for rather than being tripped up by XYZ or there being you know, super ornate, gaudy things everywhere to look at. It's really, to me, has always been about clarity and focus in a space. Were you doing this sort of stuff like in school or in, when you started to do architecture, right? So you leave, you graduate Mizzou, you go to WashU, and you are studying architecture with the, the understanding and love of interior design. What was some of that stuff look like? I mean, were, did you go to Scandinavia a bunch and kind of get more inspiration from there? I mean, well, so obviously there's a lot of traveling to do in the United States, which yeah. I did a lot more through Mizzou. But then when I got to WashU, I studied abroad in Barcelona. Um, so then we traveled all over Europe and different places. I would also say that I discovered architects like Tadao Ando or Tom Kundig or people like that, that were just sort of breaking the mold a little bit. If you're not familiar, Tadao Ando, really, he's a Japanese figure that a lot of people in architecture would recognize. Um, but it's very modern and sleek and concrete. Like he pioneered different things. Like the with polished concrete. concrete stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so that was just totally foreign to, you know, suburban neighborhoods or whatever I'd seen previously. Um, and so I think stuff like that kind of, awoke something in me to want to explore and evolve and see what else was out there. Yeah, because I think it just like architecture and obviously interior design almost gets like a little bit of a bad rap because like you were saying, interior design, yes, like the first thing that pops into my head is some sort of celebrity endorsed pillow mm-hmm. or um, something that is completely unattainable and like unreachable into which it's an amazing Italian lamp that I don't really understand, but it's $10,000, right? Mm -hmm. And then with architecture, it kind of seems almost like, and please educate me on this, but like this very old man, male-dominated world of 
bizarro shapes that are being built just for the sake of building them. Yes, I would echo some of what you said. But <laughs> yeah, well, please, please. I think um, <laughs> I think that with a lot of things, you know, if there's something big and flashy, that gets the headlines, and that's what people right. get excited about. Um, but then, if that's all anyone's excited about, you sort of lose focus of what were you making this building for to begin with. And so, I think some of those more ephemeral or emotional kinds of things of what does it feel like in the space? What does it feel like to walk through here? And what are those finishes and how all that fits together is so important. Um, But certainly I did experience some of that of like, just build a building that is a hexagon or whatever (laughs) and make it fit when maybe that's not the shape that lends itself to this program that goes within the building. And so Merging those things together is obviously where you win and where it gets really exciting. Yeah. So you're you're in school and you you work on this hospital, but obviously like artifacts kind of happened pretty organically outside of this. Yeah. So what mm-hmm. what was the original plan pre-artifacts? Because, you know, given our conversation, it sounded like you had your your whole life mapped out beforehand. <laughs> Yes. Yes, I did. And there were members of my family that weren't very excited about this change. But um, but so my life was mapped out. I have a master's degree. I got a job out of college right away when a lot of people weren't at the time. It was 2010. So the economy okay. was still kind of rebounding from a construction okay. standpoint. And um, I think I knew right away that I it wasn't quite for me that this big corporate structure around the design, I was less excited about. But I think it also was part of being 24 years old and wanting to know everything and like get get in and get my hands dirty and that not being part of the structure that was set up. So Artifacts partially was born out of just being excited and wanting to go figure things out and try something new and you know, each step of the way having to be the one to build it instead of just being told Here's what you do this week. Get it done. Artifacts was you and Dan, correct? Mm-hmm. Dan yeah. Worth, your husband. Yes. Um, as you, how how did that kind of like build up? Because from what I understand, there was a contest and you guys like kind of made this desk and entered this contest. Yeah. Well, so to back up, as I was going to get this big corporate architecture job right out of school, Dan yeah. did the opposite and he graduated and he said, I don't want to get a job. I don't need that. And so he decided to just do design work on his own as freelance and contract. And that was growing and building. And so we came at it from two totally different perspectives. Um, But I was interested in what he was doing and kind of the cool stuff he was getting to bounce around to, whereas I felt like I was kind of stuck in one avenue. Um, But so through that, he wanted to build a desk for his workspace. And I knew what was out there. He grew up in the furniture world with his family. They owned a local furniture store. Um, And, you know, I met with furniture reps at the firm and things like that. So we kind of knew what was out there. We knew it didn't dock tablets or phones or have places for headphones or all this like tech clutter that we all had and didn't know what to do with. And so Dan really started out by saying, I just want to be able to stand these things up. So I can see them. So they're right at my fingertips. And so what we did was we set out to create something just for him in his workspace with this like agency set up. And then pretty shortly after that, I found a contest online through apartment therapy. uh, And it was a worldwide 
design product competition. So we had nothing. <laughs> I always joke that like we didn't even have a garage to build this thing in. So we were mm. building prototypes of these products in a backyard under floodlights late at night after work. Uh, so it was quite, quite an adventure, I guess. But even at the moment, <laughs> it was just to build for ourselves because it was something we were excited about. And the contest was due in a week. So we built a brand, a video, a website, photography, the products themselves, and did all of that at 4 a.m. every night before the deadline. So I want to backpedal here because you guys make this desk. And I remember this. And it was like, you know, people were, oh, that's really cool. Like, this is a cool desk. Oh, I would want to get a desk like that. And as an aside, kind of thinking about this, you think about um, necessary and unnecessary innovation, right? So mm -hmm. uh, unnecessary innovation is like Velcro that needs to be silent or something like that, right? So, um, but the concept of a desk, right, which is just a place you sit to work, I feel like it was never really messed with ever at all. Like shapes changed, you know, like you have cool prouvé sort of looking legs and things like that. But like, and maybe you can't answer this. I don't know. But like, why was no one ever trying to make the desk or like innovate the desk before you guys? I think that's a really good question. And it was something we definitely set out to do. And that was part of where our name came from, of clever artifacts. So taking something that's kind of antiquated and familiar and then improving it with clever features and functionality to make it more exciting and more usable for anyone who's purchasing the product. I I think it's really just an effect of technology and how much faster all of our lives are. And certainly you could put a door on a, you know, sawhorse kind of thing. And we saw a lot of people <laughs> through COVID that were trying to set up impromptu desks in their homes. Um, and that works. That works if that's all you need. But for people who are like us that really want to optimize and fine tune all parts of their lives and make them aesthetically pleasing and things like that and merging that together. I think it's a really exciting thing. Of course, it's not like inventing this huge thing that advances society, but <laughs> right. it also is like, oh, wow, I can sit down at my desk in the morning. I can put my bag here. I can put my iPad here. I can build out the accessories I need. And I, it just fits. And I feel like I sit down in an environment where I can be as my most productive and efficient. And that's really exciting to people because I do think there's younger generations or like our demographic of people really care about the work that they do. Yeah. And more importantly, I feel like thanks to, you know, Instagram and people trying to show like what their their work setup is. I'm air quoting that. Like, I feel like back in the day, I don't know, like 20 years ago, no one really thought of or cared what other people's desks look like or what their work setup was like that maybe wasn't in that world and now from instagram and the whole w you know like my, my, whether it's like the everyday carry where people like put all mm -hmm. the things they have in their pockets like i don't care but like but all of a sudden i started to really care about more than what someone was wearing like what's on their walls mm -hmm. what's their desk look like what's the chair look like you know is it ergonomic is it uh, how do you make these things and not look tacky? You know, how to, and so you guys come along, you make this desk, you enter this contest and you win, no? Well, so let me give you some background on this. Please, that, yeah. <laughs> that what we didn't realize when we were submitting was that 
we were submitting against pretty legit companies that were already established. And we had one prototype of a product that was made outside in the yard. Who else were you um, submitting against? A, I don't even know anymore because it was so long ago, but real companies where we looked up their websites and we're like, oh, they're shipping worldwide or, oh, <laughs> we recognize this. And so we're like, oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Um, but then a few weeks later, we were on the homepage. We're in the top three viewers choice. We started getting emails from people all over the world. Um, and there were some pretty great judges on that as well. So when we were able to, you know, pause in the public for a minute while we set up manufacturing and really got the company launched this time for real. Um, we were able to go back to that and had such great features and such great traction because of the interest that we had received from that contest. So what do you do? Because now people want to make want you to make it. And mm -hmm. I think this is another thing that's like difficult because, you know, it sounds like all the different hats you have to wear is one design. So you have to make something that is good. Uh, mm -hmm. to communicate that design, and then three, actually physically make that. So you got people saying, "I want this desk." Well, how are? What do you? How do you make? You just go grab some wood. I mean, what what is this looking like here? Oh wow, it it went through <laughs> some iterations, I would say. But so I at first tried to just go find manufacturers, and manufacturing is such a um, it's an older industry in which most people don't need to have websites and Instagram and Twitter. And so it makes yeah. them hard to find. Um, so basically I just started knocking on doors. And when I would find someone who would tell me, no, we don't do that. I would say, great. Who do you know that does? And so just slowly, but surely kind of piece together all the different suppliers we needed to make the first product and got to know them really well. Like I would hang out at their shop while they were making samples for us and try to learn every single thing that I could about oh, why is there tear out here? Or why is that failing here? How can we modify the design a little bit to work with this equipment so that it's right every time? Or what can we learn from these guys who've been doing it for decades that we're just showing up and saying, hey, can you make this product? Instead, now we have an education of how things are made quite a bit more detailed. Well, what, what was the reception like? Like, are they like, well, why are you here? Um, I would say mixed reactions. Okay. But <laughs> I would say some people were very entertained by me and they were happy to have me there in the shop and thought okay. it was funny that there was a 20 something year old girl who wanted to know about what they were doing. Um, and then we had others who pushed back quite a bit and hated it. And if we had any corrections or quality issues, they weren't having it. So it really was kind of a, trial and error to find the right partners who understood what we were looking for. And thankfully, we found them and have great partners now. Well, wait, but what does that do to you, honestly? Because <laughs> I feel like people will often neglect what happens along someone's journey. So like, how are you, who are you talking to? Or, or is someone mentoring you that's like, oh, sorry? <laughs> no, not at all. So it was just every single day getting up and hitting the pavement and work like, kind of massaging through it, if that makes sense, like little by little getting setbacks, but then advancing and then figuring this out and then advancing. And I remember the very first desk right before we started to ship it, the supplier said, hey, uh, have you talked to with the freight company? Because you probably can't ship these. <laughs> I remember being like, wait, what? So what we realized was if we changed like a couple small dimensions that we were within the standards and it was totally fine. But things like that, that you just don't really expect 
that you have right. to figure out on the fly. Yeah, because after you guys sort of go through this contest, did they, because it, it wasn't Shark Tank, let's be clear. It's not like you get an, a business advisor and they come on your board and then they scale you and they give you like capital injections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You just kind of got, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you got money, like seed money to no, we, but, we got no? nothing. We just got exposure from this. And so we got started. We found manufacturers. We started to like produce our first product. Oh, and fun fact is some of the very first suppliers that we worked with were Amish because my parents retired and moved out to a farm near an Amish community that my dad grew up nearby. And we Wait. realized very quickly that that wasn't going to last with that particular group. What you mean because of uh, how Amish approach or not approach technology? Yeah, I think a few times my dad had to go find them to see if our samples were done and they were out playing baseball oh. instead of doing what we were supposed to be doing. And that's, that's totally great. <laughs> fine and great. And I'm happy for them. But it it wasn't going to work for our customers and for what we needed to get done. So we very quickly so, evolved from there. <laughs> so did you guys get seed money? Because I, I had thought at one point you 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 win the contest, but then there's like another thing that happened that was that was like yeah. in St. Louis entrepreneurship. So, yes. So we okay. got started. I already quit my job. We already had this plan of we're just going to move forward no matter what happens and you know, push for the best. And how many desks have you sold at this point? None. We hadn't even launched anything. Oh, shit. Um, okay. <laughs> but so then we entered a competition called Arch Grants here in St. Louis. And we launched the company, I think, two weeks before their final pitch and decision. Um, and we had sold some desks, thankfully, in that really short amount of time. And then we won that, which was our seed money for inventory purchases right out of the gate, which was $50,000. Nice. And so mm -hmm. that obviously gets you a... a a little bit of runway to start making stuff, right? Hey, to us at the time, it, it was huge. You know, it made such no. a big difference. 50 grand purchasing. is a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. No, I hear you. <laughs> um, but so purchasing all of that inventory and just what we realized very quickly is that we had already outsold the suppliers that we were set up with. And so then I had to go do it all over again. Our suppliers that we had set up, we hadn't anticipated the volume that we got right out of the gate. And so it already broke the system. Oh, shit. Okay, that's yeah. not good. So we, so you start, <laughs> you start over again. Yeah. <laughs> Is there sort of like an open standard of how people accept physical design things? The short answer is no. There is no standard. <laughs> Sweet. Maybe okay. if you get involved in some like specific production community where they all follow the same standards, but that has right. not been our experience at all. So yeah, every time it's getting to know totally new people and how they operate and and how to work within that, I would say. But we've had such an education along the way that we mm -hmm. always try to cross every T, dot every I, and make sure all the information's there so that our partners can you know, get those first runs done as well as possible. And then we can come in and tweak tiny little details instead of it being a total disaster if you show up with a napkin sketch thinking you're going to get some, one thing and then you get something totally different. So, right. Yeah. So you move to these larger suppliers now. Yeah. And now the business, and what year is this? Because the business is kind of like churning. That happened pretty quickly. I would say it was within the first few months. Okay. <laughs> and are you still with those suppliers now? Have you been able to like, or did you bust it again? We busted it again. Okay. So. <laughs> 
But I will say, so it happened a few times because it's hard to forecast what you expect. And then, you know, we've seen some very significant growth, obviously, especially with COVID and different things. But I would say the suppliers that we work with now can handle the capacity now and down the road. And so we've switched gears from working with people locally or working with people in a certain network. And now it's working with the right people wherever they are in the country that can handle what we're after with the quality that we look for. So the business is kind of firing on all cylinders. And then I Mm -hmm. think obviously COVID hits and that for everyone obviously was a crazy, insane time. But the biggest thing that happened is everybody's working from home and now all of a sudden cares about their desk and cares about mm-hmm. furniture. So you guys like seriously blow up. What what happened with that? Because obviously it's panic and boom at the same time. Yeah. And also the layer of protecting us and our team and all of that when there's so much <laughs> unknown. And it was very, very tricky for sure. But yeah, we saw a huge spike and no longer was it I'll order a piece of furniture and if it takes 18 weeks, that's fine. And it's custom and whatever. Now it's like, I need this desk tomorrow. How fast can I get it? While suppliers are all closing down or they can't get raw materials or freight can't arrive. So it was a, it was a beast for sure. But I think, you know, I attribute it to our team of manufacturers that we work with, to our team internally, that everyone really just did whatever they could to to keep it moving. Like we would even go inspect stuff on site if we had to or help get stuff out the door in the worst case scenarios. So it was um, it was intense, to say the least. Yeah. And then like how because I think there, there's also, you know, one of the things that obviously I I didn't mention that you all are having to wrestle with is the fact that you're also having to educate your consumers on why things are worth the money, Mm -hmm. right? Because the artifacts desks, as beautiful as they are, they're not cheap. And yeah, sure, you could get a door and two sawhorse. So like, how are you going through that too at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different ways to look at the world, right? And so- There's one way, which is I just like to go buy tons of stuff and I want to swap it out every year and and that's okay with me. And I want to pay as little as possible because I know I'm going to move on to the next thing really quickly. And I should also say that as we were getting started, I still lived in an apartment pretty close to WashU at the time. And every semester when it would end, the alleys and dumpsters would just be filled with IKEA furniture that college students move out of their apartment after their year throw everything away and start over wherever they go. And so that was a little bit disheartening to see of just how much waste there was within the industry. And so, I mean, I think we already came from a perspective of wanting high quality, great things, caring about if it can be made in the U.S. out of hardwood material, let's do it and let's find the right people to produce that. Um, Because I think it all, it all goes together into this like symbiotic thing, right? Like, We learned that early on, a lot of trees are harvested in the Midwest. So walnut and white oak grow here. The trees get cut down. They're shipped overseas. They're milled into really thin veneers, applied to particle board, and then shipped all the way back. And so, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, And so, yes, hardwood and paying people their fair wage here in the U.S. is more expensive. But if you look at the overall cost of like 
what are we doing to the world? I can, I feel much better about saying, look, we're producing high quality products that can last and you're not going to throw it away after a year. It's, you know, that's a night and day difference within the industry. Yeah, I do feel like COVID helped with that in the, in the sense of paying more attention to having good things in mm-hmm. your home. I think where people put their value on the things that they cared more about, COVID really made home, I'm air quoting, like that mm-hmm. whole category uh, Absolutely. Looked at more. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing, you know, just like what we've talked about with spaces and how important that is. Like, do you want to walk into your home and feel like a sense of calm and relief? And like, this is my safe space that I feel at my best or walk in and think this is chaos. Everything's <laughs> falling apart. What am I doing here? And not being able to leave your home obviously puts that in perspective quite a bit more. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I also think from a perspective of like fashion, you know, you can go to stores and buy a shirt for $20 and, you know, there's a place for that in the world. But you also, I think as people evolve and figure out what they care about or get older or whatever and want to invest in pieces that really last and that they can care about and be really excited about the story or how it's made or why it's made. Um, I think that's where artifacts fits is a place where people really want to plug into the products and plug the products into their environment and be excited about it and know that they're going to last and it really cultivating an environment that they're excited about. Yeah, I think especially over the past few years, you know, and we've been working on our house and renovating it and stuff. I look at how much I cared about um, clothes, which I still love. And it's still probably, you know, something I is like my first love. But realizing all the money I was spending on clothes that I didn't really keep and didn't really hold on to or would just kind of wear and and sell or try to flip or something like that. And then realizing like all the amazing pieces of furniture I could have gotten for the Mm -hmm. past 15, 16 years. And I'm like, shit, I was doing it all wrong. (laughs) Right, right. And that's not to say like. It doesn't mean that you have tons of money to be able to buy a a few good pieces. It's just where you're prioritizing. And so if you, if you slow down here, maybe you can focus there or vice versa. Yeah, I'm I'm, absolutely. So you guys blow up and people are getting pissed off because they can't get their stuff (laughs) on Amazon Prime, but they still want to get a nice desk. Uh, Mm -hmm. How, you know, are you better now? Like, what, what's the situation <laughs> been? Because obviously it looks like you can just buy the desks and they, they're shipping. Yeah. So I would say in 2021, that was our primary focus is get everything back in stock. And, and that was um, a difficult task for sure. And it was finding the right suppliers to plug in or ramping up with our existing suppliers, but really prioritizing that ability to ship and stock because we knew people were waiting for like buying a sofa in January and not getting it until December. And so there's so much frustration within the industry about those types of things. So we tried to close that gap as best we could. Obviously, there's still some struggles, but some of the main items that you really do need to get right away, we've made sure that we can quick ship. Yeah, I think what it's like furniture has been the hardest hit in terms of like price increases. Yeah, raw materials have really faced a lot. I know that a lot of um, lumber mills were just shut down completely through the beginning of COVID. And Mm. so they shut down completely, demand skyrocketed, and those two things combined just really has 
wreaked havoc on the supply chain. <laughs> right. But obviously, you know, while you're doing this, you're also making new products because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Artifoxes, you guys have desks, but you also have, uh, I mean, I think you had the bike rack pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. We did, yeah. Um, and then now you have a larger desk or a table? Yeah, so in 2020, towards the end of the year, we launched the table, which is a larger desk, or it can be sort of a communal work environment or a dining space that can be converted to a workspace really nicely in a smaller home or apartment. Um, so really just trying to give that flexibility of work and where you work and still keeping those cables managed and still with the aesthetic. Um, we also launched the bench and an acrylic line and then a few other items, like a mini version of our wall shelf mm. to build out an entryway space. So we've added quite a bit, um, but all with that same solid hardwood made in the USA, no big cargo ships being yeah. held in the port. <laughs> <laughs> do you like is the plan you just you know keep making skews like how like how big do you see artifacts getting in terms of products i see it, the potential for it to get really big i think what's exciting to us is that we have such an awesome audience of customers that we work with and people tend to come back and want to plug in new accessories that go with a product or a piece for a different space but that matches the aesthetic and so I think what we've done is laid out sort of our ethos and what we care about. And we're excited to see that other people care about that as well. Um, so I think that's limitless to some degree of how many products can fit within that thread. Can you educate me here? Because when I think of American furniture designers, they I can't think of any new ones of the past 20 plus years, right? It's like, uh, Charles and Ray Eames, and then you have like Arrow, Saarinen, and then uh, that's it. Like, <laughs> who? So, what is the issue, and in, in, like why there aren't more American furniture designers, or am I just an idiot and I'm not looking at it right? Which is probably also true. I think, like you said, it a lot of it is this stuff exists. We need somebody to come in and sort of reimagine it in a bigger way, and that's maybe our niche that we've found here. Yeah, I mean, because that's the stuff I want to see more of. I feel like I know a ton of, and thankfully because of Instagram and stuff, right? Like I know a ton of uh, American interior designers and mm -hmm. now they're making furniture, but not so much of, you know, and look, I read Dwell and Architectural Digest and all the goofy blogs and all that. So it's I'm not that disconnected. But at the <laughs> same time, I'm like, well, who are these other folks that are making beautiful things but at, but also at the ability to scale it and i think that's mm -hmm. that's the stuff that gets me like the most excited is it's true you can get you know there's this awesome furniture designer in texas and she mm -hmm. makes like five chairs a year and but at the same time like they're ten thousand dollars each like that's right i think <laughs> you're actually hitting exactly on what our mission was when we got started it's taking high design and high quality and these things, but making it a little bit more available to the masses, making it easy to ship or easy to purchase. When we first got started too, a lot of it was, you couldn't really buy a Herman Miller desk and chair or Knoll or some of these other things because you had to go through a distributor and they were expecting to work with big commercial buyers instead of an individual. And so seeing some of those walls that are blocking people from getting the the quality they want or the design they want, that's that's where we plugged in or like ran after that audience. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I think people really appreciate the convenience as well. And being able to just get online a few clicks and then it arrives to you quickly. Yeah. Like on that note. So as you've, you know, grown as a designer, uh, an architect and et cetera, if you go to someone's home, right? So you just, you get invited, somebody's having a party and you walk in their house and they have this. What are the things that you see that you're like, oh, this person understands good design? What are the objects? <laughs> Oh, anything Eames related usually or Dieter Rams or um, I would also say just general principles of not having too much stuff, like having key pieces that are displayed or used in a way that is purposeful. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think something that kind of differentiates us is that there's this big movement right now with interior design that is like big wall shelves to display things that you would never use, but they're beautiful. Is this Grand Millennial? Are you calling out (laughs) Grand Millennial? No, I'm not. No, but (laughs) no, because I see it everywhere. And so for me, that's just a struggle because what I want to have on my shelves are things that are useful, but also beautiful. And so that's what we've tried to do with Artifacts products as well. What's on your shelves? Oh, all kinds of design books or down in the dining room, it's different than up in the office, but design books, candles, you know, cool magazines that we've collected or prototypes of products or raw materials. So things that we want to look at and get excited about, but not necessarily like a big wooden chain. (laughs) (laughs) No, okay. It sounds like I'm glad you did this because that was like, there's this design concept that everyone's obsessed with. And it even got plugged on the world's greatest television show, Hometown. Uh, (laughs) And it's this concept called Grand Millennial. Do you know what this is? I'm not super familiar with it, to be honest. (laughs) Okay, so Grand... You're educating me now. Okay, Grand Millennial. It's someone ranging from the mid-20s to their late 30s, and they have an affinity for design trends considered by mainstream culture to be, quote, stuffy, quote, or outdated, quote. Uh, Things like ruffles, embroidered linens, prints, but basically a modern reinterpretation of somebody's grandparents' home is is grand Mm -hmm. millennial. And I feel like it's all over Architectural Digest. It's all over Dwell. It's all over like all of the sort of mainstream cool kid and all over Instagram where it's like, I'm going to put some bizarro wallpaper that's got felt in it. And then I have an atomizer that's shooting the scent of old lavender blasted through the walls (laughs) with a grand chandelier that I made with my friends from Etsy. Yeah. Yeah. So you just (laughs) described the opposite of of us. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, you've seen this, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, to each their own. And if that's (laughs) what you like, great. But... But what we realized long ago is that there's always trends. And instead of chasing the trends, creating things that are tactile and useful and productive is much more natural to us and makes a lot more sense. Um, So less decor and more like functional, but also beautiful within the space. Yeah. Like, have you seen any other sort of things like that that have kind of popped that you're like, "Mm, I don't know if this is going to last that long? Oh, well, I mean, I think colors come in in a big way. Can you elaborate? 
I just think like we're seeing it in fashion more. We're seeing it in other places, but that that is the new thing because people are ready to get out of their house and, you know, be excited and celebrate and things like that. So I think we'll see a lot more color distributed everywhere for a bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened with us and I'll put myself on blast. So when we got our house, we were like, oh, we're going to go nuts. And my wife loves blue. Like she loves like blue, you know, and because for me, I always had like this muted gray and like black stuff, whatever. And and like trying to take myself really serious. And she was like, I want to paint this entire room blue. And we went nuts the whole freaking room. I mean, just like a, it's a beautiful blue, but mm-hmm. now it's an accent wall of a blue versus we eventually were like, oh, this is so dark. Like everything is so dark. And then a friend of mine who's an interior designer, she was like, you should just have colorful objects, less colorful walls, because she's like, you can just swap out objects to change mm-hmm. your moods. And I was like, son of a bitch. And so we, <laughs> re- we repainted everything white. And right now it literally looks like a white box because we're still renovating. We haven't put stuff up. But like as you're making objects, do you often be like, hey, if you're going to get this object, this is the design world that it fits in? Or like, say somebody's got some grand millennial crazy chandelier and they want an artifacts desk. Are you like, eh? <laughs> I mean, I express yourself however you want to do. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe that is it. Just like however you want to combine things, I think there's just things that will last in your space and things that are going to go in a year. And I think if you just accept that and make sure you spend the money on the things that last and not on the things that you're going to be tired of in six months that, you know, swap out things, do whatever you want. Okay, this is a series of random questions. Okay. If you were making a YouTube how-to video, what would the subject be? Probably something food-related. I'm a big, big foodie. Okay. Like we make everything from scratch. We pay very close attention to what we eat. Well, oh wait, define make everything from scratch. Do you like, well, yeah, but well, traditionally not because I'm gluten-free, but we've started making like everyone else through COVID gluten-free sourdough bread. So you're gluten-free. And then I believe you've also been a vegetarian since I've known you. Yeah. Since I was 10. Since you were 10. Yes. Okay. Um, Do you think it's easier or more difficult to be a vegetarian now? Much, much easier. I don't even think about it. It's not an issue anymore. But I remember being a kid and going to restaurants and um, asking for something vegetarian and getting iceberg lettuce with like a tomato wedge on top and that be it. (laughs) Oh, that's trash. (laughs) Uh, What is the last movie you saw? Oh, House of Gucci. It was a very cautionary tale of a husband and wife in business together (laughs) (laughs) well i think i've I've seen the movie too it's a little bit crazier than that but yeah what were you you looking you worried about getting murdered (laughs) no (laughs) no it's so over the top i actually found it really entertaining of just like seeing it go from a family business to the next generation trying to figure out their place within it and then working with partners and, you know, just all the different dynamics from that perspective. But obviously anything design and business together is interesting to me. Um, What is the last YouTube video you watched? I watch, I often watch adventure YouTube videos with Dan. So it's like people who go on trips because we can't go do anything. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, what's the last thing you you bought online? <laughs> Actually, boots. I bought some uh, like Doc Martin style boots recently. What? Because I was going to say, I mean, to to jump on the clothes thing for a second, you have a pretty strong uniform. I do. Yes. What? And you've always had that. Where did that come from? I grew up in households that very much valued like quality over quantity, and so like my parents would buy my dad for example had a coach briefcase that he took to work with him every day like well, coach um, the brand yeah and and this was you know back in the 80s and if it tore or ripped he would send it back to them to get repaired and then he would keep it or things like that and so i always saw that from the perspective of more classic shapes and styles and it be more architecturally cut as far as mm-hmm. clothing goes. And then when I traveled around the world quite a bit, when I studied abroad, that was just reinforced from some of the styles that we saw of this effortless kind of put together vibe of neutral colors and just like flattering forms rather than chasing the trends. And so I've always just run with that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for chatting with me. This was really great. And I look forward to chat with you soon. All right. I'll see you. Good talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, do all the deals, follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us, leave us a message, and we'll put it in a future episode. Numbers in the show notes, fam. Or email us at info at blamopod.com. If you want to hang with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where there are tons and tons and tons of exclusive episodes and our amazing Slack community. All right, that's it for me. Last episode's next week. I'm taking a vacation. See ya.